Tracks bringing you episode 13 of the Tong Points Podcast. This edition packed with goodies, facts, figures, rules and information. We go from far north Mission Beach, down south to Tassie at Bayside, and across the ditch to New Zealand. And it wouldn't be a show without Jerry's facts and figures. We might even have time to slip in a few paraprostokians. So sit back and relax. Not if you're driving, of course. And immerse into Batong Points podcast. It's a common fact that Batong people are nice people. Just recently, that has again been brought to the fore by a Bayside Bulls Batong Club player being officially recognised for extracurricular activities. Bayside members are beyond proud that club member Sam Allender has been awarded the Ambulance Service Medal, Tasmania, in the 2022 Australia Day Awards. The Ambulance Service Medal was instituted to recognise those who have rendered distinguished service as a member of an Australian Ambulance Service. Sam has been the most wonderful Bayside member for three years. She just happened to be going for a walk and found the club playing at the Long Beach Piste. Her playing colleagues say she's beyond kind and caring, always smiling, joyously enthusiastic, plays with determination and true grit, puts up with all the old people ramblings, is fun and funny and a loving and loyal friend. Sadly for the club, Sam is leaving Tasmania to go home to Victoria with Ken and her family. Well done, Sam. For our friends in New Zealand, here's an up-to-date on the Patong New Zealand PNZ's website. The PNZ website will be moving from patongnz.com to patong.nz. The old website has been archived at patong.nz slash patongnz. However, it will be a static copy and will not be updated. The online tournament entry forms will be removed as they will no longer work. Entry forms for the National Triples, Women's Triples and Shooting Competition can be accessed now at www.patonk.nz events. There are bound to be a few glitches during the move, but hopefully it won't prove to be too stressful. Good luck, NZers. I play Patonk. A statement that now sits proudly on my car rear window. These are the brand new bumper stickers that the Patong Federation of Australia have produced and making available. All affiliated clubs should receive them by mid-February and they are available from the PFA website shop if you require more. What a brilliant idea. I've been searching for something like this for ages and applaud the PFA for this production. However, and maybe it's just the commercial side of me, as an addition to these stickers, there could have been an option for overprinting, at a price of course, with something like at St Kilda, at St Andrews, at Weirds. Anyway, well done, PFA. Cheers. Official opening of the Woodend Hanging Rock Baton Club Woodend Peast. Friday 4th of February was the official cutting of the ribbon undertaken by Mayor Jennifer Anderson, with assistance from Councillor Janet Pearce, also support from... Councillor Bill West and Dean Frank, good on you, Dean, Coordinator Re- Recreation and Sport, who were thanked for their time and support to the club. 
A couple of games of Patong were played with guests joining in. Winners on the day with the highest scores were first Shirley Marshall. Got on you, Shirley. Second, Bill Couch. Equal third, David Shaw and Lawrence Gresh. Well done. Lucky chair prizes won by Diana Koziki and Anne Brown. Nibbles in between games were followed by a barbecue and salads and rounded off with fruit sticks. The new piste is being enjoyed by all with the thanks to the hard workers who facilitated such and to the committee and the member and volunteers on the day. Further to that, I had a conversation with Chinka Steele about the Wood End Hanging Rock Baton Club, and here it is. Chinka, what prompted me to call you was that I'd read somewhere that the Wood End Hanging Rock Baton Club was putting in a new piece called the Racecourse Piece, and then I thought, let's find out a little bit more about the club itself. Can you tell us where the club actually is in relation to, say, Melbourne in Australia? We're about 70 kilometres out of Melbourne towards Bendigo. The club... Oh, yes, Rex. <laughs> Good one. Is that Rex the dog? <laughs> no, it's not Rex the dog. He's talking gone outside. We actually have got two venues. We've got Hanging Rock, which is a nationally, internationally known uh, sort of tourist site. We play up there on Thursday, and we've just recently, over the last 12 months or so, commenced playing the old Woody Ed race course. Hence the name of the new piece is the race course piece. Correct. Now, that puts you up in the ranges somewhere, so does that mean you're affected by weather a lot up there? Woody Ed sits under, if I can call it that, Mount Macedon, just under a 1,000 feet above sea level. It attracts the weather without doubt. Obviously that has its own challenges and things like that. What were the beginnings of your club? I believe you were heavily involved in that. My wife and I travelled to Strength, the um, people who hosted the uh, guest house we stayed in, to go down to the local park and play the top. We went down to the local park and went Ruled the line through the balls, and then maybe the second or third day, four in fact, senior blokes came along, right. and watched them, and they drew a circle, and, and it became very uh, competitive. And this got you in. And the thing that really captivated us was it was no longer just a game of rolling up ball on the ground, but we saw good players getting the ball out of the way, and that, that excited us. So we came back to Australia, got on with our life. I made some inquiries. I happened to know Ken's brother, who was picked up the racing uh, world, and that uh, gave us a bit of a club in December of my. I ran a Christmas party and bought a whole lot of cheap bull sets and we, part of the fun, played the talk. And then, as a result, we got up and run here. It was that first... Um... Ironically, at the old race course. And everything's still going well with that association? We 
started playing there behind a new basketball stadium. But we, we found it unsuitable as we got to play the game a bit more. So we moved out to play at Hagee Well. We negotiated with the council. Right. I might add they wanted $28,000. They perceived were what we required. I was pretty lucky with some connections I had. A local contractor got me some spoons, arranged it down at Hang the Rock at the time, assisted me, and we did a job. We, re- we effectively resurfaced the car park. Uh, a bit of bit more suitable scrum, and we were up and running. Fantastic! And they didn't mind you taking the car park. Well, we only use it most of the time Thursday, October to March, and we have traditionally closed during winter. But then we held the 2006 Australian National National Team Walk, and that prompted improving another car park. The result of the work we did improving that car park, we then got a grant of $3,000 to build a shelter, which was a shelter for the public with a small section of the building for us to use for storage. And we've continued to play out there on Thursdays so we've got a long association with Hanging Rock and we hope it will continue for a long time. I've heard that you've run some really interesting kinds of events, apart from, and congratulations on that 2006 National Triples, but I have heard that you run some really interesting other days. I've heard of things like a cidery day, Pinot and Patonk, Rockers and Rooters. We have a number of local cideries. We just in take over a car park. One at Dalesford, we played out about three or four years. We'd play at 9 o'clock till 12.30, and then we'd have a, a most enjoyable lunch. Sounds wonderful. It's one of the benefits of playing Patonk. I, I can understand a cidery day and a Pinot day going down really well. But what are the rockers and rooters, Chinka? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're the rockers. And the Rooters are the Roots Car Club. Oh, I see. Yep. Now, how big's the club at the moment, Chinka? You've got a few members there? We've had 100 members and we've had 50 members, but we're sitting at 80 at the moment. Now, what about the future, Chinka? Are you looking at holding the Nationals or something like that? Uh, I doubt whether we're thinking of holding the Nationals. There's two issues. The... Hang Rock Reserve is undertaking a master plan at the moment. Oh, yeah. Which I think erroneously pinpoint us along with the cricket club and the tennis club to be removed from the reserve. I hope that we can persuade it's actually the state government sway them to take a more balanced view because of the contribution of all those clubs to the fabric of England. But from a point of view of attracting new members, there's no doubt that the wooden part of the wooden hang rock town club will become central at the race course. Right. We've built this new fit about 10 
this as a trial, yep. we are able to use the horse arenas. Oh, yeah. So we have the capacity to, I don't know, we can host three or four hundred players, but we're very currently negotiating. We're co-tenants with the two pony clubs, and we're dancing around with the Woodhead men's yet who are looking for a permanent guaranteed home. Right. I think they would make a very good addition to the two pony clubs of ourselves. Yep. There's the possibility then of really developing a building space, a proper club room, but retaining the, very much retaining the horse facilities. Yep. Um, and dual capacity for use of horse arenas for our play. It's a tremendous opportunity. It sounds like you've got a plan or you've got to fight against a plan as well at the same time. Vichinka, that's fantastic. I've enjoyed it. There's so much more about Wood and Hanging Rock I didn't know. Uh, our spiritual home, having spent the last 20 plus years at Hanging Rock, is very emotional for us. We built the shelter. We don't want to exit Hanging Rock at all, but I do see long-term future at uh, the race course. Yep. Thank you very much for that. I do look forward to catching up with you and I will give you a call. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. All right, Chinky, you take care. Bye. Cheers now. Bye. Have you got Rusty Bulls? Here's how to restore Rusty Bulls. This is from an American website all about Patonk and it was posted on November 10, 2016. If you happen to find some rusty old bulls, don't throw them away. They can be restored to a playable condition, even when it's covered in a thick coat of orange rust. This is not a disaster. All that is needed is a wire brush. If you have a bull for which that isn't enough, then soak the bull in distilled white vinegar for a day or two. The acetic acid in the vinegar will soften the rust so it can be easily scrubbed away. Afterwards, remove the vinegar by thoroughly rinsing the bull with water or with a weak solution of baking soda to neutralise the acetic acid. A quicker solution is to use hydrochloric acid, which can easily be found as muratic acid in stores that sell swimming pool maintenance supplies. Hmm. But I would recommend that only for extreme cases. There are also products called rust converters, that don't remove rust, but chemically convert it to a hard, black, stable material called iron tannate. Rust converters are often used to restore and preserve iron-based historical artefacts, such as old swords. For more information, do an internet search for rust converter. Hope that helps. Have you ever been in a situation where there is an unplayed bull discovered after an end is finished? Or what about deciding that one bull is holding, only to discover later by measuring that in fact it wasn't? So you've played out of turn. Or have you? Here to help sort it out is PSA Chair of Umpires Commission, all-round good guy who always looks so elegant in that Collingwood top. Well, I think that's what it is. 
David Shaw. And I've got a good one for you this time, David. It's called either The Forgotten Bull or it can be just playing out of turn. Let me set the scenario for you and then we can extend it further if we need to. I'm Team A playing with Team B. Team B seems to be on their last bull. We look at them and say, have you got any more bulls to play? They say no because they've forgotten they do actually have one and it's just hidden away over the other side. So they allow us to play. As we're about to count out who wins, they discover, hey, we've still got a ball to play. What's the situation? Is it a dead bull? Did my team, who played after they said go ahead, play out of turn? Or did they not play out of turn? So they were at fault. And what happens next? Strictly by the rules... Team A, your team, played out of turn, in which case that bull was dead and uh, at the discretion of the other team may be removed and anything put back in its place that was moved as long as it was marked. So even though they said they were out of bulls and we can play, we're at fault still. Strictly to the rules, yes. Okay. If I had three more bulls to play, then all those three would be dead bulls. By extension, yes. All right. Well, if you say that, then we get into a situation where we've both got three bulls left each team. I had just thrown a wonderful bull, and it looks like I held. Nobody measured, but we agreed that I held. They played their next three trying to get better than the one that I put down there and then I played my last one and we all go up and we measure and we discover that my bull wasn't the bull that was holding so they played out of turn. Do all of their bulls become dead? What do we do there? Whoever played out of turn, their bulls are dead and at your discretion they may either be left where they are and, and everything stays on the ground as it is, or they can be removed. And as long as bulls were marked, bulls can be returned to those original marks. Good luck with that, incidentally. Yes, there, <laughs> there is the rub, if the bulls were marked, because obviously if they threw three more bulls, messed things up all around the place by hitting other bulls of ours and other bulls of theirs, then yep. it would be impossible to work out who was where. So they have to be marked you would have to score it as whatever the situation is on the ground after you remove their bull. Yes, uh, if you call the umpire over, that's all that he or she could say as well. I can only rule on what I can see on the ground. Now, the other point to that, of course, Rex, is what the heck were you all doing down at the circle end anyway? This comes back to uh, being aware in a game. Now, this has got nothing to do with the rules, but if you look at all of the all of the vision on, on YouTube and your other favourite internet channels, yep. where do you see the teams at all times? They're up at the head end observing what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Look, that makes sense. And as long as they're what they're supposed to be at least two metres apart as well, so one lot are up there and the other lot are down there. I guess a little bit away from each other. The two metres applies to the team who is not playing yep. as being, you know, away from the jack. Right. Uh, but the team who's playing, they could actually stand in the way on the piste if they wanted to. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I've seen that where people, they'll stand and put their foot where they believe their team members should throw. So that's all yeah. okay. 
It is indeed. As long as all you're doing with that foot is just indicating and not doing some additional tampering, tampering down on the ground at the same time. People in Batonk <laughs> don't do that sort of thing, David. Of course not. Of course not. How, how could I? Yeah, that's just my vivid imagination. So the lesson to be learned here is if in doubt, measure. And more than that, mark everything. <laughs> the other lesson from this is count the bulls. Yes. Always count the bulls. That's right. We've discussed that before. Each team should know who, who's got what and where it is and who's paying the rent. Yep, absolutely. So the, the bulls that are on the terrain are live and any bulls that are dead should be placed at the end mm-hmm. and be visible. Hopefully, count the bulls. Okay, let me just go back to where we were, though, David. So for myself and my listener, we can get it clearer in our mind. I'd thrown, we believed my bull was holding, but we discover later that it wasn't. The other team threw its last three bulls and disrupted other bulls that were on the ground when it was there. We get up there and discover that my bull wasn't holding. So we've got to say all of the, those last three bulls they threw were dead and they should be removed. Well, you have the option of removing them right, or leaving them where they are. You have that option. Oh, I see. Okay, that may benefit us, in fact, by leaving them where they are. Hmm. It, it may indeed. So that's up to the team who was injured by the other team throwing out a turn. Correct. I've come across this with a number of times that I've played where people have gone, oh, I've left one, or, oh, whose bull is that up there? And we've already lifted the ring up, and we've already walked yep. down to the other end. Just going back on that, Article 24, bull thrown contrary to the rules is the one that uh, specifies that you have the options open to you as to whether to apply an advantage rule or not. Right. I just mentioned then lifting up the circle as well, and that leads me on to another thing that there are mats instead of circles that are being used. Are these mats legal? I am not aware, partly because I'm not informed, but I am not aware of any uh, of these so-called mats that have been approved as circles. Sure. Whether they're approved or not, David, what's your thoughts on them? I would have thought they're a little bit safer than the rings themselves. By safer, you mean less of a tripping hazard? Exactly, yeah. I guess it would come down to the manufacturer of the circles. I would have thought the challenge with a solid circle is the, its potential to greatly change the ground on which they're placed. I would have thought also that they'd probably move a little more easily too. As people are getting on and off, it's going to slide a little bit left or a little bit right. But as you say, it depends what the stuff is made from. I thought it was a slight uh, left and a jump to the right, but I could be wrong. Indeed. Okay, David, look, thank you so very much for joining us again today and giving us all that wisdom that you have. And uh, it's cleared that up much better for myself and hopefully for our listener as well. If I could just pick you up on one point is that um, people shouldn't be afraid to ask questions of umpires. And if if that's through you as a conduit, um, so that they can ask anonymously if they're too shy to ask. Uh, when we're, you know, when we're officiating, you can always ask an umpire, um, you know, for a ruling if you're unsure during a game. If you think that your that your opponents might be trying to pull a fast one over you, you know, whatever. Uh, the umpires are there um, to try and educate as well as having to measure and rule and do all the other things we do. Understood. That's a great idea. All right, David. Look, thanks for that. I'll let you go now, and I better get this organised. Cheers. Over and out, Ricky. Cheers, mate. Thank you, David. Excellent as usual. 
I would just like to add that David mentioned off-air that in the previous Batong Points episode, in conversation with Guy Monsieur, we neglected to announce that Guy is now also the state umpiring manager of Victoria. Good on you, Guy. Oh, and I would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge that it is not a Collingwood Football Club top in which David umpires. Sorry, David. Wollongong Masters, this is a report from Marie-Anne Curjean. The 2022 Wollongong Masters is now over. Thank you to all who participated and also the volunteers who helped make it a success. Full results of men's matches and finals have been uploaded on my patonk. But due to an operator malfunction, the women's qualifying matches are uploaded on my patonk, but the finals are attached to this post only. The women's principal finals, first, Kimberly Broadbridge with Ariadne Ernest, second, Nellie's Brady with Yili Han, third, Catherine Alexander with Leanne Maison. Women's Consolante finals, first, Lillian Caruana and Danielle Marchand, second, Doreen Boudin and Cathy Eyre, third, Victoria O'Connor with Meredith Clark. Canberra Patong did well with fewer entrants than ever due to COVID uncertainty. That's COVID uncertainty. And also from Bulls Artiste Patong Club. Great weekend of Patong at the Wollongong Masters competition. 26 Bulls Artistes attended. Harold and Tran won the Men's Principal with Sai and Jean-Luc runners-up and Kimberly and Ariane won the Women's Principal against Delis and Yili from Newcastle. Ray and Fabrice won the men's consolante against Elaine and Patrick, and Danny and Lillian from Preston's won the women's consolante against Kathy and Doreen from Newcastle. Here's Jerry. Good morning, Jerry. This is Rex. How are you? Hey, good morning, Rex. I'm very well, thank you. Fantastic. What have you got for us this week, Jerry? Something long and involved, or something quick and easy? Well, it's, uh, it's relatively quick and easy. I thought we'd talk about one of the biggest tournaments in France. Right. Le Mondial La Marseillaise, which, as you might guess, takes place in Marseille, France's second city. I would have guessed that, because <laughs> I'm <laughs> quick like that sometimes. <laughs> um, yeah, it's got some very impressive figures in terms of players and, and visitors. It's incredibly popular. It's been going since 1961. So this is a sort of a traditional thing, and it's built up over the years. So 1961 it started? That's right. So in 61, the first year, there were 388 teams participating, which is, you know, quite a good number uh, when you think about it. Well, we couldn't get that many teams in the All of Australia, I wouldn't think. Well, I, yes, I think you probably could. Uh, going on uh, from memory last year... Avoca fielded uh, around 70 teams. Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, okay, Um, I'll take that comment back. Please go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) And it's kind of interesting, actually, to compare it to to a tournament like Avoca. Yep. It actually follows the same sort of format in so far as tournament is actually played in the town itself. Right. uh, In the public spaces. So in in Avoca you play along the high street. And they're all in the one place, whereas to do 388 teams they wouldn't be all in the one square, surely? Well, I can't say where they played in 1961. Today it's spread over um, some 30 sites in the uh, city of Marseille. 
but the primary space is the Tarka Borelli, which is quite a big public space. So the majority of the games are organized there. Right. Let me just tell you, uh, first of all, the thing is the Mondial de Marseille is played over five days. All right. You need that many days to get to the final. Sure, and this would be the height of summer or something too, would it? It is. I think it's the start of the first weekend in July. Oh, okay, yep. And as I say, there's some 30 or so sites within the city of Marseille. The finals on the last day are played in the old port in between the town hall and the port itself and the sea as a backdrop. So, you know, for people who just want to watch the final, it's a very nice setting. Lovely. But just to give you a number of the, uh, an idea of some of the figures, in 2015, there were 2,080 terrain views. Wow. <laughs> that was on the first day of competition. And back to back, those terrains uh, measured approximately 40 kilometers. Oh my goodness, they are big numbers. They're very big numbers. I actually did the calculation based on those figures. It's a big piece. Close to 20. Right. So the number of bulls thrown is quite prodigious as well. There were 37,440 bulls used. And assuming an average weight of 680 grams, the cumulative weight would have been 25 metric tons. The world would be tipping over on one side, I would have thought. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, if they threw them all at once, it would be wouldn't it? It would. I think <laughs> it would read something on the seismic scale, that's for sure. <laughs> the following year, now 2016, I think 2016 was, was the 55th anniversary of the game. Oh, yeah. So there were 3,690 games played on the first day. Yep. <laughs> and, you know, obviously a tournament on that scale takes a lot of organising. So, you know, there were over 100 volunteers, 2,000 square metres of office space were used for coordinating the game, the draws housing the medical personnel. And, you know, in, in terms of spectators as well, it, it's always been a big draw card and it's been getting bigger and bigger. I think it, on the, the 55th anniversary, they had 70,000 spectators on the first day. Wow. 150,000 for the entire event, 15,000 players across all categories. And they included players from 30 countries. That's got to be really good for the economy of the area as well. I mean, all of those people need accommodation, food, drink, everything else that goes with it. It must be really a great boost. That's fantastic. There, there is a figure there that uh, what it brings to the city of Marseille. It's obviously to millions and millions of euros. That's certainly been a boost for, for the local economy. Obviously, they've got major sponsors and minor sponsors and people like that too. Yes, that's a good point. Uh, their major sponsor, starting from the second year of the competition, was Paul Ricard. Uh, Paul Ricard uh, was the owner of uh, Ricard Pernod. Oh, yep. Um, the company that makes uh, the aniseed aperitif. Uh, yep. As the story goes, he was present there in 1961 for the inaugural holding of the competition, and there were 388 teams, yep. which is no small number. And he noted that a lot of the players were drinking pastis. As they would. As they would. It, it, it's very popular in France in general. Yep. And it's a refreshing drink, and it, people like to drink that whilst, whilst they're, you know, in between games or sometimes even in between uh, ends. Right. The spectators were drinking it. 
In any case, he thought, well, this, this is very good for sales. He decided there and then that he proceeded to, to become the major sponsor for the event. I like the man. <laughs> There's a, an interesting anecdote connected to this because when they held the uh, 51st edition of the Marseillaise Epiton, yep. the organisers on that year, see what they would normally do is that they use the number. Yeah. It would have been Le Mondial de Marseillaise uh, 51. Yep. Okay. On that year, they decided to leave the number 51 off the flyer. The reason for that is that in, in Marseille, the number 51 is, is understood as a reference to Pastis, Pastis 51, which was made by Pernod. It was a label. They had this Pastis 40-something in, in the past. But Pastis 51 was, was the most popular label made by uh, Pernod. And this was in competition to Paul Ricard and his Pastis well, that's right. So they didn't want to offend Paul Ricard. But I guess what they didn't know at the time was that since 1962, well, Ricard and Pernod had amalgamated. So he was the owner of both in any case. Oh, well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but of course, Ricard carried his name, so maybe that was the feeling that they should defer to the Ricard portion yeah. more than the Pernod portion. And would I know any of the major winners of these at all? You certainly know Marco Puyo. He's won the title six times. Stéphane Robineau, he's won five times. Philippe Cherté, Bielorossi, I think it's uh, four times each. Yep. Philippe Tuchot has won a number of times. Uh, the male player with the most wins is Albert Tichapia. He had seven wins. That's not bad, is it? That's pretty good. And it was actually, it was always, uh, Marco Puyo was always aiming for a seventh win. He's come close to it. It's probably going to be too late for him now, I think. Um, Is it open to both males and females, Jerry? Uh, yes, since 1989, uh, there's been a separate class uh, for, for young players. Right. And 2002, there was a separate class for women. Yep. So um, I, I think up until that point, it was everyone played together. Right, I'm with you. Um, and in terms of the women, the uh, lady with the most wins yep. is... Uh, I don't actually know very much about her. Right. Isn't it sad? The only female name that comes to mind for me is Cindy. And that's a shame, isn't it? That I know a number of the other names that you just mentioned, but uh, about the only female player in France that I'm aware of is Cindy, and that's because she's um, been on YouTube so much with her shooting prowess. Yes, and uh, she did actually win. She won that in 2019. Oh, OK, good. So I would expect to see her name appear a few more times over the next few years uh, because she, she's uh, she's still young so, um, and she's really just coming to international prominence now. Yeah. So you could certainly expect to see to see her appear again. Um, I think she's only won it once. Right. And Fabienne, well, she won it for the last time in 2016. Right. And the first time in 2003. But remember, obviously, that that's only been, uh, for the women, it's, only, it's been a separate uh, sure. event uh, only since 2003. Well, that's amazing. Jerry, once again, you've overwhelmed us with numbers and facts and figures that only you would have. And I really appreciate that. And our listener really appreciates that too. No, I was just going to say, Rick, really interesting to look at, a you know, something which is, considered to be the, the, the biggest tournament in the world in, in terms of numbers and compare it 
you know, and just look at, at how it started and, and compare it to some of the things we've got here because we still have the Avoca tournament, yep. which, is, uh, which is very similar in format. But we used to have the Tuanuara tournament, which was held in Tanola. Oh, yeah. Now, I, I can't remember when the last time. It probably goes, it's probably three or four years ago that said that was last time. But um, I'm pretty sure they used to have over 200 teams. Wow. And, of course, they were in a perfect position to attract the, uh, players from uh, from across South Australia as well as Victoria. Yep. So it's food for thought, you know, you know, something like that could start up again in Australia and take on a, a life of its own. The interesting thing too, Jerry, is this is such a huge competition, a huge event that only people in the world of Patonk know that it exists. But it's up there with huge football competitions because of the numbers yeah. of people that are involved and the numbers of spectators that they must have along there. Well, that, that's right. And, you know, I mean, you know, we, we mentioned 150,000 spectators over the five days that they had in 2016. For them, the experience is, is fantastic because um, you're not being herded in, into a stadium locked in a seat, so to speak, sure. for a couple of hours. Here you're free to move around. Yeah, you can right in on. I mean, standing standing right next to the players. That are, uh, it's a bit different, uh, different, obviously, on the last day for the final. Sure, I imagine. Uh, yeah, uh, but up until then, you know, you can wander in and out of the cafe or bar, have some recap or some some terrible, you know, as, as you like. It's uh, it's uh, very much a carnival. Well, I think that's something we should really consider, Jerry. Maybe you and I can get this little project going and. Do the largest <laughs> Patong tournament in the Southern Hemisphere. Yes, yeah, so that very impressive, wouldn't it? Uh, we just need to find a sponsor like Paul Vicat and, and we're, we're off. Someone like Dom Perignon or Krug, I think, would be a good idea. Oh, I might, yeah. Jerry, once again, you've filled us full of facts and interesting things, and I really do appreciate it, and I thank you very, very much for that. All right, look, we'll leave it there, and once again, thanks so much, Jerry. Take care. You're most welcome, Max. And uh, I look forward, hopefully, to seeing you in Avoca. Yep, indeed. We'll make sure we do. And we'll have a bottle of pastis if we are. <laughs> well, let's make sure we we bring either one of those or a bottle of Krug up. <laughs> oh, you bring the Krug, I'll bring the pastis. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Jerry. Okay, I'll let you go. All right. Thanks, Rick. Bye-bye. Bye. Someone told me they saw a review online of Patong Points podcast. The reviewer said, although he didn't know anything of Patong, he found the show interesting. Well, that's nice. He also said, though, that the guy doing the podcast was the king of dad jokes. So not to be a disappointment, here are a few paraproskotokians, a higher level of dad joke. One, where there's a will, I want to be in it. Two, if I agreed with you, we'd both be wrong. Three, you don't need a parachute to skydive. You only need a parachute to skydive twice. I used to be indecisive, but now I'm not sure. Yes, that's enough of that. So, why not visit Woodend? Check out the New Zealand website. Polish your bulls nicely. Please don't play out of turn. And look out for the biggest patonk event in the Southern Hemisphere. 
Remember, if you'd like something of your club featured on Petong Points Podcast, email audiorexy at gmail.com. Audiorexy at gmail.com. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode. But most of all, play and enjoy at least one game this week. Rex out. You're a good man, Rex. Stick around.